Hey folks, it's Jana. Today's show is all about taking care of yourself or someone else by choosing a healthcare plan in the individual marketplace, by enrolling in Medicare or Medicaid, or by planning for long-term care. Our guest has expertise in all these areas, and we're going to be covering lots of ground. So maybe get out a pen and paper and take some notes. And if you have questions or you'd like to hear more about one of these topics, let us know and we'll answer those questions and do more of a deep dive in a future show. Send us your questions and feedback to Jana at agewise.com. That's J-A-N-A at A-G-E-W-Y-Z dot com. Here's the show. In the United States, if you want to sign up for health insurance for 2018, you better get on it because open enrollment ends on December 15th. That's the drop-dead date to sign up for a new plan or to renew an existing plan. But if you're like me, just the thought of trying to understand the pros and cons of a bronze or silver HMO, PPO, or EPO health insurance plan sends your blood pressure through the roof. That's why we need people like today's guest. Thad Hooker is an insurance agent who spent many years helping people like you and me navigate America's health insurance market. Thad is based in West Palm Beach, Florida, and he works with the Assurance Group, which has offices all over the United States. On the show today, we're going to talk with him about how to make an informed decision by that December 15 drop-dead enrollment date. We're also going to talk about alternatives to long-term care and how you or someone in your family can get smart about Medicare. Thad Hooker, it's great to have you on the show. Welcome to the AgeWise podcast. Thank you for having me. So before we get into this, tell us how long you've been in this business, and maybe you can point to some changes that you've noticed in the health insurance market over the years. Absolutely. Um, I've been involved in the health insurance industry for about 20 years, and when I, before I became an agent, I actually ran call centers for insurance companies. So oh, wow. my agents, my directors, my managers, and myself, we had to know equal to, if not more, than the agents out in the field because we were scheduling appointments, we were answering uh, customers' questions, and we were basically handling everything behind the scenes. I transitioned to become an agent about four years ago, and to be honest with you, it was, it was the best move that I ever made because I really enjoy sitting down with clients and reviewing their options, and I am an agent, but I'm also a broker, which means that I can literally look at the broad offerings that are out there and kind of narrow it down and figure out what, what's best for my clients. Mm-hmm. And how has uncertainty over the Affordable Care Act affected your conversations with people about the oh, marketplace plans? I, it's elicited more phone calls this year than in, any other year, just asking what's happening, you know, has anything changed? And really, to be quite honest with you, it, it's pretty much status quo. Uh, there's less advertising out there, advertising individual health insurance. And again, I, I just want to qualify this. People who are covered by group insurance, this does not affect them directly. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're targeting this more towards individuals who are either self-employed or don't get uh, group health insurance from an employer. That's that's who the individual Affordable Care Act marketplace is available for. Right. And to clarify, does using an insurance agent cost money, and who pays? Absolutely not. Um, an insurance agent is compensated by the insurance companies, so it is in a client's best interest to use an insurance agent because you're using somebody who has the know-how, 
who has the understanding of the markets of the different plans that are out there. And my, my personal suggestion is, yes, you can call a plan directly and get the information, but you're only going to get information on that plan's offerings. Uh, it's best to use a broker, um, an agent who has availability to all the options so they can cover all the bases for you. Okay. And do these marketplace plans vary considerably from state to state? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, every state is different. I'm licensed in multiple states, but um, my target market is really Florida, but I can help my clients in virtually any state. If I'm not licensed in that state, I can refer an agent or I can obtain the license in that state. Okay. So can you take us through an example of someone who calls you asking for help choosing an insurance plan? What sort of questions do you ask? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, the, the first thing that I ask is, are they eligible for group insurance? And that's not necessarily through their employer. If they happen to be married, we also need to make sure that they're not eligible for group coverage through a spouse's coverage Mm -hmm. because that does not allow them to get a subsidy, which is through the Affordable Care Act. It is household size-based and income size-based. If you qualify for a subsidy that reduces how much you would pay monthly for for your premium. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, that subsidy would also reduce the deductible, the out-of-pocket maximum, and the co-pays. So that would be the first question that I would ask. The next would be dates of birth of the family members, um, if any of the adults are smokers or non-smokers, if there are any doctors that are important to them. I would need to know that because we can check the plan directories to make sure that they're in-network. If there are any medications that any of the family members are taking, that's important also because not every plan uh, covers every medication. So we want to make sure that that's important as well. And one of the basics is also the zip code. Um, health insurance is based by where you reside. So that, that would be an important factor as well. Mm-hmm. And for folks who don't really have a sense of this, what's the difference between an HMO and a PPO and what's an EPO? Great question. HMO is a health maintenance organization and the basic structure of an HMO means that you need to pick a primary care doctor in network, and in order to see a specialist, you have to get a referral from your doctor approved by the plan before you can see that specialist, and that specialist has to be in network as well. And if you're getting a referral, the doctor knows what plan you're on, and they're going to refer you to an in-network specialist. The restriction there is that your coverage is basically regional. With most HMOs, some vary a little bit, but in most cases, an HMO means that for the majority of your care, you're going to get it in in your regional area. It does not cover you outside of that area, meaning that Hmm. if you live in Florida and you go on a ski trip to Montana and you want to see an allergist because your allergies are acting up, if you're on an HMO, you're going to have to pay for that visit out of pocket. Now, on that same trip, God forbid you broke your leg, that's considered an emergency, and HMO does cover you for that emergency. A PPO is a preferred provider organization. An EPO is an exclusive provider organization. They're very similar with a few variables. PPO is basically you don't have to select a primary, and you do not need to get a referral to see a specialist. You have in-network and out-of-network benefits meaning if you see an in-network provider, you're typically going to pay a lower copay, or if you have a service done, a test, uh, blood work, MRI, something along those lines. If you stay with an in-network provider for any of those services, you're going to pay less. You have the option of going out of network, but you're going to pay a higher 
deductible or copay for the, those services. And EPO is a little bit different in the sense that you do not have the limits that an HMO does in seeing a specialist. So you can see a specialist in network. Most EPOs only allow regional coverage. They do not have a nationwide network like PPO does. Mm-hmm. And are there certain requirements that all health insurance plans in the U.S. must meet? Absolutely. Right now, as the law stands, unless it changes in the in the future, they are they do have requirements that there are certain essential benefits that they do have to provide. So we are outside of the days of prior to about 2010 when plans could kind of pick and choose if they were going to provide mental health coverage, if they were going to provide coverage if a woman became pregnant. Those are included in all plans now. And one of the major questions I get from a lot of my male clients is, well, why does it have coverage if a woman gets pregnant? Because the cost sharing is spread across the whole pool of insurance. Uh That makes sure that any, any woman that gets pregnant, she has maternity coverage. Okay. What are some of the misconceptions, do you think, that people have in choosing these plans? Biggest misconception this year is that is the Affordable Care Act, uh, the healthcare marketplace still available? And the answer is absolutely yes. Nothing has changed. Obviously, our, our current administration is in the process of making changes to the healthcare system, but everything is pretty much status quo. So that's the biggest misconception is that hmm. that is, things have changed. It has not. Things are pretty much status quo right now. Another misconception is there's talk about changes that are being proposed. Those cannot go into effect until it's passed as a law. So everything is pretty much status quo right now. Mm -hmm. And do you hear certain common questions and concerns you hear over and over again? Well, the biggest one is they want to make sure that they can see the doctors that they want to continue to see. They want to make sure that their medications are covered. People, and and again, I have clients that go with an HMO, a PPO, an EPO. It all depends on what their needs are. An individual who typically does not do a lot of travel um, would be perfectly fine with an HMO. If an individual is constantly traveling or in the state of Florida, we have snowbirds who live here part of the year and up north part of the year, a, a PPO would be more advantageous. Maybe their job takes them in different parts of the country. A a PPO or an EPO would be more beneficial for them in that regard. Yeah. So um, also, can you tell us what the advantages may be for folks who are interested in a catastrophic plan or disadvantages? Sure, absolutely. A catastrophic plan basically means that what you're paying for is a stopgap amount. And that stopgap amount, when when you look at the documents on that policy, it's what's called the out-of-pocket maximum. That is the amount that is your stopgap. That means that's the most you will pay for healthcare services besides your monthly premium for the calendar year. A catastrophic plan means essentially you're going to be paying for regular price on what that particular plan negotiated with that provider for that service. So if it's a doctor's visit, an MRI, if it's blood work, you're going to be paying out of pocket up to the out of pocket maximum. Now, the advantage to that. Typically, the premiums are much lower, and if you're fairly healthy and you only need to see the doctor a few times a year, it might save you some money. And it does give you the peace of mind of knowing that I have coverage, I'm not going to have low copays, I'm going to have to pay a little bit more for my visits, but it's going to limit the amount um, if something catastrophic happens, a surgery, a car accident, something along those lines where you know that you're limited in the amount that you have versus not having coverage where you're, you're going to be held responsible for, for the entire charge. Mm-hmm. 
But the downside of those catastrophic plans is that the deductible is really high, right, typically? Right, yeah. And, and just to clarify, because this is another major issue that I get as well, whenever you see a plan's documents and it says deductible, the deductible is always part of the out-of-pocket maximum. So it's not the deductible and the out-of-pocket combined. Your out-of-pocket maximum includes the deductible, so that's the most you would ever have to pay. So, yes, you, you are going to, be going to be paying out-of-pocket for the majority of, of your services, if not all, and that applies towards in most cases, your deductible and your out-of-pocket maximum. Okay, so let's say you have a catastrophic plan and your out-of-pocket maximum is $10,000, let's say. So that means that if you have an emergency, you have to spend $10,000 of your own money before you're going to be helped, correct? Right, before before that plan kicks in. Before that plan helps you. Yeah, in most cases, if it's a catastrophic event, it's going to be much more than $10,000. Right. So it's kind of limiting what your exposure is. So right. So you're, you're kind of controlling your cost versus not having insurance. And if you had a catastrophic event happen, you're going to be on the hook for, for the entire charge. Right. But even for some people, coming up with ten grand is tough. Oh, absolutely. I, I agree with you 100%. And again, it is not the government that dictates the um, out-of-pocket maximums. It's the insurance companies that offer it. And they are extremely high. And what I tell people is in the event that something like that happened and you were exposed to that, you can negotiate with their providers to pay over time. It's not that you have to come up with $10,000 mm-hmm. that day. You're allowed to negotiate with the providers so that you can work, work on a payment scale. Yeah, which brings me to the thought that that's probably one of the other misconceptions is that you can't negotiate. Of course, it's so time-consuming to spend time on the phone with an insurance company. But I have found, because I've done this myself, that you can negotiate with them. Absolutely. And again, it's not only the insurer, but it's the provider, because what's right. going to happen with any plan is, for instance, we're talking about catastrophic plans, but if you get a bill from a provider, a hospital, whoever, for, say, $6,000, um, you can contact that provider directly and, and see what you can work out financially with them. One thing I stress to people is it's always good to be your own best advocate or have a family member acting on your behalf because you need to be aware of this. There are situations where sometimes doctors will refer you to, on a PPO, for instance, or an EPO. I have had clients, I had one client who was referred for a sleep study, and it turns out the sleep study facility was not in network. The doctor's office did not do their due diligence and did not do the patient a favor by referring them to that place. And they ended up having to pay a $700 bill not realizing that they weren't in network. So mm-hmm. along the lines, it's, uh, it's always best to ask, is this provider you're referring me to in network? Right. You really have to be your own best advocate. Or have somebody acting on, on your behalf. Right. So can we define some terms for people that might not know what some of these things mean quickly? Um, sure. Allowed amount. The allowed amount is what the health plan states that they will allow a um, provider to charge you for that service. So that means that the hospital, the doctor, uh, the MIR, the MIR center, the, the MRI center, the uh, sleep study center, uh, they have a contract with the healthcare provider, whatever health plan that you have, that that, that, is, that, that is the amount that they are allowed to charge. Okay. And what is included in preventive services? Typically? Preventive services, typically it will give you a, a checkup 
uh, mammograms are considered preventative, flu shots are considered preventative, um, and, and there's a few others that, that are out there that are considered um, uh, basically services that are guaranteed by, by every health plan that there is no charge for. Right. Okay. How about coinsurance? Coinsurance is that's where your deductible would, would come into play. And in most cases, what you'll see is on a plan, a plan will say, okay, deductible first and then coinsurance, let's say, of 20%. Okay. That means, hypothetically, if you have a $1,000 deductible and if that particular service that you're having done stipulates deductible first and then coinsurance, you would have to pay the first $1,000 and then whatever the difference is between your deductible and your out-of-pocket maximum um, it would be a percentage of that. So let's say a plan has a $1,000 deductible, $5,000 out-of-pocket max. You have a $2,000 service done. You're going to have a, you're going to be responsible for $1,000, and then you would pay 20% of the next thousand. Okay. Okay, that makes perfect sense. Thank you. And what is balanced billing? This is the last one. <laughs> Yeah, balance billing is is a process that um, most insurance companies will prevent you from being exposed to, but balance billing basically allows the provider, either a doctor or a hospital, to charge extra charges above and beyond what they would normally uh, charge. Now, you will be exposed to balance billing in a lot of cases if you go through a provider out of network, Mm -hmm. or you would be exposed to that if you're on an HMO, and if you go to a, a doctor who's out of network, that the HMO is not going to pay towards at all. So you need to be careful with that. Mm, okay. So let's talk about uh, long-term care. Um, sure. I've read that 70% of us are going to need some kind of long-term care in our lives. And of course, as we all know, the cost of care is rising. So what is long-term care? What does it include? And how are some of the older policies comparing with the new ones? Great question. I specialize in Medicare and long-term care and also helping clients make health care decisions even under 65. So long-term care is one of the areas that I stress to my clients as well. A major misconception about long-term care is that it will be covered by Medicare. It is not covered by Medicare. There is no stipulation in any type once somebody reaches Medicare that long-term care is covered. Mm -hmm. And the best way to define this, because a lot of people don't understand what it means, long-term care is a situation where you would typically meet at least two what we refer to as ADLs, which are activities of daily living. Mm -hmm. So examples of those would be, are you able to bathe yourself? Are you able to prepare a meal? Can um, Can you use the toilet on your own? Can you rise out of a a chair or a, or a couch on your own. Once a doctor signs off that you're not able to accomplish at least two activities of daily living, that's when long-term care would kick in if you have a long-term care policy. And long-term care, um, just as an example, and the numbers vary a little bit, but the average cost is about $6,000 a month. And that could be an aide or a nurse coming to a home or it could be in a nursing home or, or a nursing facility. And, of course, th- those costs are rising, like, like you had mentioned. And the best way to protect yourself is to have long-term care insurance. And there's three ways to accomplish that. Traditional long-term care policy, where you pay a monthly premium and you have a certain benefit that's available to you for long-term care. You can also accomplish that through life insurance policies 
Nowadays, they have what are called living benefits, mm-hmm. where you can actually utilize your death benefit early in the event that you need long-term care. And also, there's a vehicle that's called a fixed indexed annuity, where you would put in a certain amount of money, and that could theoretically become up to three times the amount you put in for the use of long-term care. And what if you never use it? Do you get it back, the fixed, the last one you mentioned? Yeah. When you put the money into a fixed index annuity, it's always your money. So if you utilize it for long-term care, it's there. But if you're the 30% or so that don't need long-term care, you still have access to those funds. It always remains your money. I personally like solving the long-term care puzzle by either the fixed index annuity or through life insurance with living benefits. The traditional long-term care policies where you pay a monthly premium, that's a world where you pay the monthly premium into it, and if you don't need it, you're not necessarily going to get that money back. Mm -hmm. And when we were talking earlier, you mentioned that you didn't really think those were very useful anymore. I mean, they weren't really affordable either. No, well, it's not only affordability, but, I mean, um, what 20 or or 30-something is seriously thinking about long-term care? That's when it's affordable. When, When you get into your 40s, 50s and older, that's when most people start thinking about long-term care, but then the prices go up. So mm-hmm. it's like any type of insurance, whether it be health insurance, life insurance, long-term care prices go up steadily as well because it's the, the premiums increase based upon the amount of time that you'd be paying into it. So let's say that your parents get any more frail and you need to consider moving him or her into a facility. Mm-hmm. Would any of these policies cover the costs? And would any long-term care policy or any of the three that you mentioned help defray some of the costs of caregiving? Absolutely. Absolutely. And and that could be in a facility or it could be at home. Okay. So um, moving on to Medicare, let's talk about what Medicare does and doesn't cover and when an individual is eligible and what steps should be taken to enroll. Absolutely. Okay. Well, first of all, um, we had talked about for folks under 65 for the individual market, the open enrollment period is November 1st through December 15th. You had mentioned that. Mm-hmm. Um, the Medicare annual enrollment period, which we call AEP, is from October 1st through December 7th. So it's a different time frame that people need to make a decision on what they want to change or review for January 1st of 2018. So Medicare basically is made up of four parts, and Medicare eligibility is the majority of people get it at 65. Now, there are exceptions. If somebody is disabled and they're receiving SSI, Social Security income, disability income, they can qualify for Medicare. Typically, it's a two-year wait period. Mm -hmm. Some are expedited depending upon what the condition is. So people can get it earlier if they are disabled. The majority of my clients are turning 65, and more and more, what I've seen, to be honest with you, uh, is people deciding to work beyond 65, mm-hmm. and they can actually delay their enrollment with no penalty. So let me let me get back to the four parts. There's Part A, Part B, Part C, and Part D. Part A is hospitalization, and that basically is four walls and a bed. It's just the hospital charges, and there's miscellaneous charges associated with that. Uh, Part B is doctor's charges and other miscellaneous charges. The doctor's charges on traditional Medicare are 80-20, which means that Medicare is going to cover about 80%, and the individual is going to be responsible for 20%, mm-hmm. and then it's not capped. Mm-hmm. So it is it is not unlimited. That's why 
we, when we advise folks, uh, we recommend that they either take a Medicare supplement, which is sometimes known as a Medigap policy, or they take a Medicare Advantage policy, which is either an HMO or a PPO, but those are different options. I'm sorry, Part did you say C, that it is capped or it's not capped? Traditional Medicare, if you just have Medicare Part A and B, mm-hmm. it is not capped. Not and, capped, um, okay. Yeah, back to Part A with hospital, you have a total of lifetime days of 150 days in the hospital. That is it. Wow. If you have traditional Medicare and you do not take a supplement or you do not take an Advantage plan, you have a lifetime limit of 150 days. That's not very much at all. No, not at all. I mean, 150 lifetime days is not that much. That's why we recommend, and I do have clients um, that I meet that are beyond 65 and all they've had is traditional Medicare. They're fairly healthy. They don't realize the exposure that they have by not taking a supplement or, or Medicare Advantage policy. Mm-hmm. Part C is Medicare Advantage. And that makes up the HMOs, the PPOs, and also what are called the prescription drug plans that you would take a prescription drug plan if you had a supplement. Mm-hmm. And Part D is prescription drug benefit. Okay. Gosh, it's so complicated. <laughs> I'm getting dizzy yeah, just mean, <laughs> talking about yeah, and, it. And what I do, I, I typically ask people when, when I meet with people on, on Medicare, did you get that? If they're new to Medicare, you know, within about three, six, six to three months of their 65th birthday or when they qualify for it, um, um, I ask them if they got the Medicare book. And the Medicare book is about an inch thick. And what I typically do is sit down review all these parts in detail, and I have uh, documents to show them on what their exposure is, what the costs are, and then what we'll do is look at what doctors are important to them, what medications, and then we can kind of narrow down the options to figure out if a Medicare supplement makes sense with a drug plan or if a Medicare Advantage HMR PPO would be better suited for them. Mm-hmm. So if somebody is soon to be eligible for Medicare, when do they have to enroll? They have to do it like three to six months before they turn 65, right? Yep. The the initial enrollment period, which is known as IEP, and, and if any of the folks out there have ever gone to the uh, Social Security website or the Medicare.gov website, you have what's called a seven-month window. And it's three months prior to your birth month, your birth month, and three months after. Okay. What I typically like to do is to... Uh, meet with folks during that three months prior so we can kind of get our ducks in a row and decide what we're doing and make sure that everything is set up so that it is effective on the first day of their birth month. That's the other misconception. If your birthday is on the 21st or 22nd, you get Medicare on the first day of your birth month. Okay. I think for a lot of people listening to this show, a lot of us are caregivers who are really so focused on our aging parents that we forget to think about our own needs. And it comes up on you really quickly. So it's a balancing act, you know. Let's talk about what happens when you run out of Medicare benefits. Do you? How does that work? Typically, no. If the planning is done appropriately, And if you have a Medicare supplement that works in conjunction with your Medicare or you have a Medicare Advantage plan, there is no cap on the amount that you would be covered for. If you have traditional Medicare Part A and B and you reach that 150 days of hospital, yes, you would run out of benefits there. Mm -hmm. But there, there is no cap necessarily on medical benefits with either traditional Medicare except for hospital it's not going to run out where, where you have to pay out of pocket. Mm-hmm. What can you tell us about Medicaid? Is that something that you kind of get involved Absolutely. with? Absolutely. 
when I work with Medicaid, it, it's traditionally people who are have Medicare and Medicaid. And Medicaid varies by state. In Florida, just as an example, individuals that are eligible for Medicaid are either the elderly who are on Medicare, and if they meet certain income limits and certain asset numbers, they can qualify for Medicaid, and there's different levels of Medicaid coverage. For individuals in the state of Florida, if you are under 65 and you are not on Medicare, you cannot qualify for Medicaid unless you're a parent with a child under 18. Hmm. I know that in Florida, the state of Florida is really stingy with Medicaid. That's what I've Correct. heard. Correct, yeah. Again, it's, it's a program that's run by the federal and the state government. Mm-hmm. So every state can decide what they will allow and what they will not allow. And there are certain stipulations in Florida that do not allow them to cover certain things. Like there are individuals, unfortunately, that are under 65 that do not qualify for a subsidy through the Affordable Care Act. And that's typically, for on an individual standpoint, somebody making less than about $12,000 a year. It's a little bit more than that, but it's about $12,000 a year. Mm-hmm. And if they're an individual and they have no children, they do not qualify for Medicaid either. So their only option is to buy a policy at, at full cost. Oh, boy. That's painful. Well, it's kind of a catch-22 because if they're making that amount of money, how in the world can they afford a policy? Well, they can't. And then they go without a policy, which leads me to my next topic. The House of Representatives, as we tape this, just passed their version of a tax bill that would rewrite America's tax code. And the latest version of the Senate tax plan would end the Affordable Care Act's requirement that most people have health insurance coverage or else they'll pay a penalty. If that provision winds up in the final bill, how will it affect our premiums? Well, it will do a couple of things. The way it is now, until it changes, is if you choose not to go without health insurance, you're charged a penalty up to a maximum of 2.5% of your adjusted gross income, and that's paid when you file your tax. Mm -hmm. If you have no proof that you had a health plan, you went without, you're subject to that penalty. And again, I say up to because there's a lot of variables involved, and it's better for your tax advisor to go over that with you if you do not have the health plan. How is it going to affect it? Well, that penalty goes in to help offset the cost. So what I see happening... Offset the cost of premiums is what you're saying. Correct. Okay. Uh, You're going to see premiums going to go up. You're going to see possibly services cut. So it's an unknown at this stage, but everything that I've heard through the industry, it's it's not a positive. Obviously, nobody wants to pay a penalty for not taking a health policy, and I totally understand that. But if they take away that penalty it will hurt the overall market. Okay, fingers crossed. Yeah. (laughs) So, Thad, what advice would you give someone who doesn't know where to begin to sign up and is really anxious about this whole process? The best thing to do is to reach out to an agent, check around with your family or friends, see if they have a trusted health insurance agent who is a broker, meaning that, and again, this this is no slight against the folks that work for the individual health plans, but What you really want to do if you're starting is find an individual who can look at all the options for you, explain them in detail, and kind of walk you through the process. Again, there's no cost to using an insurance agent. They are compensated by the insurance company once you take a policy. That is really the biggest key to it. I see a lot of folks who have, they've they've told me they've gone on to the Affordable Care Act marketplace, they've called the insurance companies, and they're really confused. And then what I try and do with them is, sit down and 
break everything down for them so they understand what the policies are that they're looking at, what they cover, what they don't cover, what's your out-of-pocket max, what's your deductible, what, what are your co-pays. Yeah, I think at this point for most of us, it's like hiring a lawyer to figure out some documents that you really just have no idea how to handle. Absolutely. And and, and, and the only thing I'll say, it, it's kind of like hiring a lawyer pro bono because right. <laughs> not paying anything. Right. You're, you're, you're getting an agent on your side. And most agents, and again, I can't attest for all of them, but most agents, if they are worth their salt, they are going to be available to you throughout the year. I have clients that have issues throughout the year that call me. And again, it's something that I do ethically to help them out. So if they're having an issue with their health plan or paying the premium or they received a letter from the marketplace requesting information, that's something that a good agent will, will walk you through and help you out with. Well, great. I know you're licensed in many states. So why don't you let us know, folks listening, how they can get in touch with you if uh, sure. they want help? Absolutely. I always give out my cell number, which is 954-854-1197. And they can also email me. It's uh, T as in Tom, N as in Nancy, Hooker, H-O-O-K-E-R, which is my last name, at Assure, A-S-S-U-R-E-G-R-P.com. T.N. Hooker at AssureGRP.com. That's my email. And if I don't answer the phone, I will definitely get back to you by the next business day. Okay. Do you have any last thoughts? Sure, absolutely. When it comes to health insurance, Medicare, long-term care, it's always advisable to look at your options. Um, unfortunately, some folks kind of put their head, head in the sand and really don't want to look at it. It's really in your best interest to explore your options. I have some clients who decide to go without, and I respect that decision. There's no mandatory requirement that you have to take health insurance, but it's good to look at your options. Obviously, there's a penalty if you don't take it, if you're under 65, but at least look at your options, see what's available, and that way you can make an educated decision as far as what's best for you and your family. And just a reminder, if you have questions or you'd like to hear more about one of these topics, let us know and we'll answer those questions and go deep on a future show. Send us your questions and feedback to Jana at agewise.com. That's J-A-N-A at A-G-E-W-Y-Z dot com. We've been speaking with insurance agent and broker Thad Hooker, who works with the Assurance Group in their West Palm Beach, Florida office. We'll have all the information Thad just gave you on the AgeWise website. Thad, thanks so much for being well, on listen, the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And hopefully uh, your listeners out there will get some information and be able to educate themselves and find out more about what's available in the marketplace. Okay. That's it for today. Thanks for joining us. The AgeWise podcast is produced by me, and it's distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk radio network. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. And remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours. <laughs>